Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Nuss, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is just beginning to recruit trail ambassadors on the northern Oregon coast to help people engage with their public lands. We'll tell you how to get involved just a little bit later in the show. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about 100 years of Oregon State Parks. It's a story of ambition and conservation, and how a bankrupt farmer who believed you could summon the rain by planting trees rose to create the agency that now oversees Oregon's most beautiful and important places. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about the past and future of how Oregonians visit the state's most beautiful places. Oregon State Park System turns 100 years old this year, and that gives us a fun excuse to talk about where state parks are now, where they've been, and how we got here. We're going to start on the modern end, because this past year, Oregon smashed its record for the number of people visiting and camping, and that's brought about a number of issues, from crowded trails to a limited number of campsites. So we'll get into how that happened and what is being done about it. In the second and third half of the show, we're going to go back in time 100 years to talk about how the state park system came together. We'll talk about the father of Oregon State Parks, the dynamic and bombastic Sam Boardman, and we'll travel through Oregon's most interesting eras, from the time a Japanese submarine opened fire on Fort Stevens State Park, to the post-war growth of giant campgrounds, to the era when the agency was so broke it considered shutting down 56 state parks. Finally, we'll talk about how Oregonians stepped in and saved the day. To join me in this adventure, I'm joined for a second time by Chris Havel, an associate director and longtime spokesman for the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. Chris, welcome back. Hey, how you doing, Zach? Doing good. In the second and third parts of the show, we'll have the honor of being joined by Christy Sweet, the historian for the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department. Christy, thanks for being with us. Hey, thank you for the invite. All right, Chris, let's start with you and the more modern end of the park story. Earlier this year, we reported that the number of people who visited state parks in 2021 smashed records for day visits and camping nights. This wasn't unique, by the way. Pretty much every outdoor space in Oregon has seen skyrocketing visitors the last two years. So first of all, how do you view these records and the experience that comes with it? Is it a great thing that so many people are coming out or is it a major challenge trying to keep up with that spike in demand? Yeah. How many ways can I split our personality here? Because, you know, my my first reaction is, uh, yay, that, you know, the dream everybody who works in parks is to turn other people on to the real joy and the benefits of being outdoors and when you're busy you feel like you've hit the mark when you take a step back but when you're in the thick of it 
you tend to see both the benefits and the costs. So there's wear and tear in the landscape, there's wear and tear on facilities, and then there's just the sort of the wear and tear on yourself um, as a, you know, either a, a ranger working in a park or uh, a seasonal who's there just helping visitors and keeping things clean uh, during the spring, summer, and fall, or the manager who in many cases is on call 24 seven for all of the things that happen in a park uh, day to day from this isn't working or I got hurt or I'd really like to enjoy X, Y, or Z. How do I do that? And those calls just sort of come in. So you really do get both sides of it. There's just a tremendous amount of satisfaction and joy from serving. Uh, but then at the end of the day, there's sort of a bill to pay. Yeah, well, I wanted to jump back in time a little bit, not all the way, because this idea of the outdoors being crowded isn't new in Oregon. We've always been a state with a lot of tourists. And of course, former Governor Tom McCall famously asked people to visit, but please not stay. So this isn't new. But for me personally, I think I'd place the beginning of the modern boom in outdoor recreation around 2012 or 13. And that was just an interesting time when Oregon kind of had this moment in the sun nationally. There was the Portlandia television show. Travel Oregon had a big hit with this campaign called the Seven Wonders of Oregon that explicitly invited people to visit the state's most beautiful places. And I think most importantly of all, there was just a ton of attention paid to the state's scenery right as social media forces like Instagram began to start their conquest of the known world. So I'm 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 curious Chris when you started to feel this at state parks. Like when did you, you guys have always been a good bellwether for the state's recreation. So when did you start to feel like something was was happening? Yeah, that that is right in the right time frame. Since 2012, we've been more or less breaking records reliably year in year out for both camping in state parks and daytime visits for picnicking and hiking and sightseeing and fishing, boating, all of those things. So I, I agree. I think um, after the economic pressures and the sort of the bursting of the housing bubble in that 2007, 2009 time period, and there was this sort of period of economic sort of malaise after that. Uh, and then the rebound and the population growth and the increased interest in uh, just the kind of lifestyle that you get from living in a state that uh, has a strong outdoor recreation heritage, all of those things just sort of funneled down into the state park system. And it's interesting that you describe state parks as a bellwether. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but because we tend to be so accessible, you know, we don't have the same kind of um, you know, barrier to entry that you might encounter if you want to go backcountry or, you know, just hike off into the woods with your backpack on your own resources and make do. Um, state parks, a little more modern, more developed, more accessible. It tends to be the first place you turn for destination outdoor rec. There are other places, the Columbia Gorge is a good example of that and some of the easier to reach spots in the Cascades. But uh, when it comes to just sort of easy to access uh, recreation, the state park system is it. But yeah, I would say right in that time frame, that 2012, 2013 is when the uh, tap really turned on more like full flow. Yeah. And we've talked about how, you know, there was that steady climb, you know, kind of along with Oregon's, you know, growing population. 
and then it kind of got supercharged with a lot a lot of new people coming out during the last two years through the the pandemic but even with things maybe getting back to normal there it doesn't seem like this outdoor boom is going away so what are you expecting this summer and into the future yeah well we're on trend for another record breaking year so far and that's what we see coming down the pike and now that we're getting back into the thick of it there there are things that are returning to normal and things that aren't and the things that are returning to normal are lots of happy faces lots of people looking to get out and just sort of get into like the physical part of recreation and the mental part where you can just sort of disconnect and enjoy time either alone or with family and friends. Sometimes those two groups overlap and just enjoy being outdoors. What hasn't come back to normal is we have a hard time finding the staff who are ready and able to jump in and work out in the field. And that's a combination of sort of the lingering effects of uh, COVID and the, you know, the impact it had on people being able to relocate and live where they work um, and the availability of affordable housing uh, for our seasonal staff. It's, uh, we got a challenging time ahead of us, I think. Well, one thing that I've heard that has uh, struck me, especially during the last two years, is the capacity issue. And it's not just state parks, but People overall are having a really hard time booking campsites and especially yurts and cabins. It's become almost this digital arms race where people wake up at the crack of dawn, log onto their computer, and the moment they can reserve them, you know, they're clicking as fast as they can. We kind of call it campsite jeopardy. So what has the capacity issue been like at state parks and has it kind of built to this moment? Like what, what did you see last year and how does that compare to previous years? Yeah. So uh, for our really in-demand sites, things like yurts and cabins and summertime and even weekends in spring, winter and uh, pardon me, spring, fall and summer, uh, demand is really high. When we start seeing occupancy rates in the 85 to 90% range, uh, which is not uncommon for state parks. And it sounds like, well, there's still 10% left. What that means when you get to those figures is there's like one night here, one night there. And for people who are looking for a couple of days away, it can be really tough. Uh, we see that trend continuing. Uh, we are going to be making investments, I'm sure that we'll talk about later, uh, to add campsites and add cabins especially, which are a little easier to both acquire and get up and placed in parks more so than yurts. Um, you know, we uh, early on in the 90s and 2000s, we spent a, a lot of time and effort getting the yurt inventory up and not so much on the cabins. Uh, and now we're trying to balance that inventory out. So few, uh, more cabins, more campsites are all on the way, but it takes time. Gotcha. All right. So looking ahead is, I think, a good place to stop for right now. So we're going to take a quick break um, and hear from our sponsors for the first time. When we return, we're going to go back in time to talk about the father of Oregon State Parks Department, a man whose name is plastered on famous landmarks all over the state. So stay with us. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At AFRC, we value protecting Oregon's forests 
and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. Okay, welcome back. Well, if you've ever traveled across Oregon from its northeast corner to the southwest coast, there's a good chance you've come across the name Boardman. You'll find it at one of the most beautiful stretches of coast, the Boardman State Scenic Corridor, and also at the town of Boardman in Morrow County. So Samuel Boardman did a lot with his time in Oregon, but he's best remembered as the father of the state park system, responsible for expanding the department from a pretty small collection of roadside spots to include many of Oregon's most iconic destinations. Christy is our expert on all things Sam Boardman, and I wanted to start towards the beginning because like so many people who've had a big impact on Oregon, Sam Boardman didn't actually grow up here. So Christy, to start, where did he come from and how did he end up out here in Oregon? Uh, Boardman actually, he was actually born out in Massachusetts and um, him and his wife decided to claim a homestead in Eastern Oregon around 1904, kind of around where the town of Boardman is currently located. They were hoping um, that they could farm the land. Um, However, they were waiting on a large uh, Bureau of Reclamation irrigation plan that never came into fruition when they were, um, what do you call, homesteading the land. And ended up going bankrupt around 19, in about 13 years. They tried farming it, never worked out, never got the irrigation they thought was coming. And um, so he quit farming, declared bankruptcy, and joined the um, highway department as an engineer to make some money. Oh, wow. That's, that's an inauspicious start. <laughs> To, to the Sam Boardman story. Okay, well, let's, you know, you mentioned the highway department. So let's talk about state parks in the early days. So correct me if I'm wrong, but state parks were originally formed as part of the Oregon Highway Department and basically focused on this series of little roadside stops, kind of what we see along Highway 101. So how did Boardman end up taking over what probably would have seemed like kind of a small potatoes operation, although he was coming from bankruptcy. So maybe it was a, it was a good deal, but how, <laughs> how did he end up there? So actually quite by accident, actually was so when he joined the highway department out in Eastern Oregon, he loved <clears throat> trees. And around that time period in history, there was this thought that if you planted trees, uh, the rain would come. So as a way to get Eastern Oregon to become more green and luscious, let's plant lots of non-native trees and um, as a highway engine, and they would start raining and we'd have our water to grow all these crops that we wanted to grow in ir- um, arid lands. So when he was in the highway department working in Eastern Oregon, as he was developing different roads and stuff, he insisted that they plant trees wherever he was building the road system. So in um, 1921 is when the state park system was created underneath um, the highway department. And um, around, oh, 1928, so almost eight years after it started, they were looking for somebody to sort of take over and because there was really nobody in charge prior to that. So they're looking around and they're like, well, we really want to hire somebody internally um, out of the highway department. And they remembered this guy out in Eastern Oregon that insisted on planting trees wherever they built highways. <laughs> so it was, I don't think he knew about it. It seems like they called him into Salem. Um, and just basically said, here you go, you're in charge of this. And he took off running, you know, within a day of him being appointed. Um, they didn't call him a, a state park superintendent. 
he was called a state park engineer. It was kind of, they didn't expect him. It wasn't, they didn't expect the job to be very long. So they thought, oh, let's bring him over here temporary and be a park engineer. Um, he was on the road traveling all over um, the United States. By, I think they were, someone had calculated how many mileage he was put on in his years. And um, I think it was something around almost half a million miles he put on his cars as he drove around the state for state parks. Wow. So he, so he was a failed farmer who insisted on this idea of planting trees to bring in the rain. And that is how we got our first director of, of state parks. Or he wasn't even a director at that point. Wow. That's that's a really random way to get a job. <laughs> but, well. he, you know, even so, he was he was described when you read about him as being kind of a stubborn but charismatic and kind of having a, an outside personality. So can you add to that a little bit? Like, what was he like as a person and how did that lead to him starting to grow the, the parks department? So how did that all mix together? He was a very strong personality and had very strong views on what he thought the um, ecology should be, how state parks should look, what state parks should be. He kept a very ironed um, hand or fist control over the state park system the whole time he was in control. Um, he didn't let his uh, park caretakers do anything without his specific agreement. Um, when the CCC and the National Park Service came in during the Depression to work on the state parks, he requested every single plan to be approved by himself. Uh, he went down to San Francisco and yelled at the National Park Service for doing stuff without talking to him. I mean, he was a force of nature, I would say. But he had very strong views on what he thought state parks should be. And that really influenced um, st how state parks look like at the beginning and influence us even today. Um, for example, he was very much um, in the belief that state parks were a place where you could come, enjoy the nature, and then you left. You didn't stay, you didn't build facilities. Um, nature was kind of like a healing property. It would heal all the woes of the industrial age and the city. So his hope was that you walked out into nature, you enjoyed it, and then you left. You didn't stay, you didn't use a picnic table. <laughs> and you didn't, there was no paths to follow on. So early on, a lot of the state parks were very much acquired um, for that purpose, scenic and um, not developed. Okay. Well, I know that one of the early places that, uh, that he went about turning into a park was the Silver Falls area. And it was really an interesting way about how it came together. I mean, before it was a park, it was a pretty wild timber town where the owners used to have people come in and pay a nickel to watch them launch old cars off the waterfalls. You know, they even sent a guy in a canoe off the waterfalls. But following the lead of photographer June Drake, Boardman really took up this idea that it should be a park. And from my understanding, kind of went door to door buying up the land, like on a, on a shoestring budget. So can you kind of talk about how he got Silver Falls together and if that was a model for how he did it? But can you kind of talk about how that all came mm -hmm. together? I don't know if it was a model, but it was definitely kind of how he acted when he tried to acquire property. So um, he went up, Boardman went up to Silver Falls. There was the, you know, pushing the cars off the falls. Um, There's also... Um, like a honky talk squeak speakeasy kind of right next to the falls where people could um and a uh, drink and gamble and things like that and that just completely appalled him you know his view of nature was you know it was very serene you shouldn't have all this development and to see all this around the falls it just 
I, yeah, he made him mad. And um, first of all, he, he talked to the National Park Service to see if the National Park Service was interested in acquiring the property um, as a national park. They came out, evaluated the land and said, no, we don't want it. And that was mostly because at that time, all the trees had been logged. So when you think of Silver Falls, you got to think of Silver Falls with just tree stumps everywhere is what they were looking at the land at the time. Um, so he started trying to acquire it for state parks. And at that time, state parks, you know, they didn't have much money. Um, it was just him. And like I think, mm, I forget how many employees he had. It wasn't many. I would say maybe 10 or 12 to run the whole state park system at the time. Um, he would go around. Um, convince people to sell the land to him, um, try to convince them that it wasn't worth anything, um, would beg and borrow. They called him the magnificent beggar. Um, <laughs> also try to convince people that, you know, hey, here's a way to leave a legacy. If you donate this land, you know, your name will be preserved into the future. But so he was able to acquire a lot of the pieces of the land around uh, where all the different falls are located, except for the the honky tonk speakeasy guy. He wouldn't sell, um, no matter how many offers that he brought. And actually, um, that piece of land was the first uh, piece of land that state parks ended up condemning, and uh, through uh, public condemnation, was able to acquire that last piece of land right through there. Gotcha. And when he couldn't get one part of the falls, the, the state actually condemned it and they got it that way. So, I mean, he didn't take Correct. no for an answer. No, he did not. He was very good at talking to lots of rich people's um, saying, hey, you know, you're going to die in a few years. You know, why don't we name the land after you? I think he even convinced somebody that will name the park after the ex-wife to help with the divorce proceedings and stuff. So, <laughs> he also did things that, you know, they would he would buy purchased land um, that had heavy timber on it and say, Hey, you can, you can log the timber. And once you log the timber, the land's going to be worthless. So then I'll buy it sort of a thing. He kind of played off the, the great depression when all the prices of land were falling. Um, he kind of took it as an opportunity to try to acquire lots of pieces of land. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So obviously when people think about Oregon state parks, they often think about the Oregon coast and it sounds like, Boardman had a big hand in that. So how did he go about, you know, claiming all those scenic headlands and, and coves and mountains along the coast for, for state parks? I mean, presumably people wanted that land. So so how did that come together? Um, a lot of it was um, he would buy a logged out land. So it was land that was already logged. So in terms of the, the thought at the time, there wasn't much um, um, economic value on the land in terms of because the timber was gone. Uh, they would do the same thing, you know talk to people, convince them to purchase the land. And then just because of the depression and the cost of the land had gone down so much, it was mostly through just a combination of that. It sounds like he just, he was good at taking the long view and, you know, kind of knowing that, you know, it, it would regrow and, and be scenic again. And then it would, it would be a park. And it, it so he, he just like thought about things in the, in the long, long view compared to the short term. It seemed like he was very, he was very worried. Um, with development, he had seen what happened on the East Coast with their development along the um, the ocean shore and tried everything to avoid that, tried to buy up the land uh, before anything uh, could happen. And at times, some of his letters, he talks about seeing uh, billboards and freaking out and be like, there's billboards going up there. We need to purchase this land before it gets developed and um, things like that. Gotcha. And you've mentioned this, but it sounds like the Great Depression was a, a really active time for him. So. 
how did that it sounds like the you know the price of the land gave him kind of an opening but how did he go about you know picking places to target did he just get tips and say wow well there's this there's these rocks over in central oregon that are really scenic maybe you should you should head out there or <laughs> you know i mean how did he how did he pick places to target i guess mm, i don't know if there was specifics i would say he's mostly picking stuff on the west side cuz in terms of his view of nature and ecology green and trees were better. He didn't really care too much for the east side, so he didn't acquire a lot of land on the east side early on during his tenure. It was mostly done um, on the west side. It was also, he was somewhat restricted. Um, he had acquired land near um, highways, so you couldn't just go off and pick, like, I want these 500 acres over here. If it wasn't near a highway, that was uh, due to some of the laws at the time that the property they acquired had to be located near a highway um, because being associated with the highway department. Um, but mostly it was opportunities as stuff came available or as he saw stuff. He was always traveling on in his car all over the place at all times. So there was no like big master plan. It, I think it was more just <laughs> to get it as we can. That sounds like a really fun job. Just like getting in your car, driving around and being like, you know, I like that area over there. That's pretty scenic. Let me see if I can, you know, go and buy it and and turn it into a park. That sounds like kind of a fun job. Well, I mean, he obviously had a big impact because numbers wise, the state park system grew a tremendous amount during his tenure from just uh, 46 small properties when he started. Um, by the time he retired in 1950, the park system included 151 properties, including 57,000 acres. That's a lot. But beyond the numbers... What would you say his biggest impact was on the state park system or the or the state overall? Oh, that's hard. <laughs> Probably his um, conservation ethos in terms of the thought that parks, you know, are just to be there, like Chris was saying, to, you know, to be out and enjoy, to heal all the balms of society and things, and that you left nature as it own. You didn't try to change any of it, which is kind of odd going to pair to his, you know, early on with plant trees to get the rain to fall idea on the east side. But it was definitely his ethos for the west side. And Chris, do you have a do you have a feel for how he changed both the state parks? Because it's again, you know, it started off as this little kind of rinky dink operation and then became something that to this, you know, this day is, you know, pretty, pretty large and sweeping. So, I mean, do you think that state parks gets there without him? Oh, mm. that's a good one. <laughs> no, yeah, it is. Uh, no, I, I um, well, other states found their way to create really engaging, interesting state park systems. Oregon found the only way that Oregon could have followed, I think, at the time, which was that that split personality that I was talking about. It's uh, uh, without somebody like Boardman saying, there's like a very passionate reason for this to get done. Um, I think what Oregon would have ended up with was a predominantly highway-based approach permanently. I mean, I, I think that we would have had a hard time shaking that a park is just a postage stamp next to a highway that um, eventually, you know, it's going to have a nice restroom and a drinking fountain, but that would have been it. I think if it, if it, we had just had the highway influence early on, um, that's what we would have inherited. Uh, what Sam injected was for, for, for good or ill, it was 
uh, his vision, his singular, uncompromising vision was uh, a place with such strong natural values that it, its power couldn't be denied, right? And as people in the 50s and 60s during the development era were really turning out in droves to state parks, what they found waiting for them were all of these really special places that then earned public support that eventually led to our separation from highways. Mm -hmm. So I, I think if when people started turning out in the 50s and 60s in large numbers and if all they found were these little sort of launching off points, but nothing really special in their boundaries, the state park system would never have attracted the support that eventually made it the success it is today. Yeah. And so after he retired, he wrote some pretty fun stories about how he acquired the land and and turned them into state parks. So Chris C. or Chris, uh, do you have any favorite stories um, from his writings about how he made a specific park or parks happen? I guess my favorite part is when we'd go to the the oligarchies and the the richer folks and would convince them to memorialize the, their name and forever you know would always convince them that you know your money's not going to last three or four generations but your name on a park will and this is a way to get them to donate land chris you, any ones that jump out to you um you know for some reason the only thing my brain is locked up on right now is one that didn't happen does that count yeah beacon rock Beacon Rock, right? Um, I think it's it's the Sam approach to getting a park to happen by by sheer force of will. And Zach, are you sitting back going Beacon Rock? What you, isn't that? Isn't that on the Washington side? Isn't that in Washington? Is what Zach is saying? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, and yes, <laughs> and they were struggling through their own sort of you know, journey towards a state park system in, in Boardman's era and Beacon Rock as one of the signature places in the gorge wasn't getting the time and attention and protection that many of the people in Washington and Sam felt it was due. So as they were teetering on it, Sam said, I'll buy it for Oregon. <laughs> that will be an Oregon state park. It will be in Washington, but uh, it will be ours. And that flipped the switch. And they said, there's no way Oregon's going to come in and buy Sam. Yes, I will. <laughs> I've got the money <laughs> and I will come make it happen. And Washington flipped and said, yeah, okay, Beacon Rock, you're, you know, they did, they, whatever they did, I don't know the rest of that part of the story, like what did it take to buy it and acquire it and protect it and become like the historic state park it is now in Washington. Uh, but that was Sam uh, to a T. And you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so, I'm so locked in on that as sort of like a character study in who Sam was that I'm I'm struggling with the Oregon <laughs> example for that. Um, but what uh, Christy relayed as sort of the wait until some the both the buyer is ready and the money is there to swoop in and get a park. Oswald West and Acola, um, Oswald West maybe more so, were was acquired in pieces. Uh, by having him bide his time and then swoop in and just be utterly ruthless uh, in offering the money to somebody who knew he knew needed it. They felt they had, they had extracted all the value from the property by logging it. He knew that the value was still there. And if everybody else had recognized the value, he wouldn't be able to afford the properties that he did buy. All right. Well, we're going to take another quick break to hear from another sponsor. When we return, we're going to highlight some of the most interesting moments of the state park era from the rise of yurts to the time the agency almost went broke. So that's when we return.
The next message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Trail Keepers of Oregon are looking for trail ambassadors to help out on the North Coast for the 2022 season. Volunteers hang out at popular trailheads on the North Coast to engage with visitors about safety, ethical use of public lands, and leave no trace practices, as well as sharing opportunities for visitors to engage with local communities. It's a way to give back to the trails we all love. All it takes to become an ambassador is taking a virtual training that can be done on your own time and will equip you to feel confident about talking to visitors as they start their recreation adventure. To get started, email Trailkeepers Engagement Manager Natalie Ferrero at natalie.ferrero at trailkeepersoforegon.org. So once again, and I'm going to spell it, it's n-a-t-a-l-i-e dot f E-R-R-A-R-O at Trailkeepers of Oregon, which is all one word, dot org. All right, so in the third segment, I'm going to ask both Christy and Chris to join me, and we're going to kind of follow a timeline through the state park system and hit some of the more interesting eras up through the 1990s. I wanted to start with what would make a really good trivia question, and that's about what this first state park in Oregon history actually was. I wouldn't have guessed it. So Chris or Christy, can you tell that story? What was Oregon's first state park and how did it happen? The first state park uh, was Sarah Helmick uh, State Park, um, south of uh, Monmouth and Independence. And it actually sort of kind of happened by accident. Um, Sarah Helmick was, um, her and her husband came out and acclaimed land as part of the Donations um, Act, uh, excuse me, the Donation um, Land Act in Oregon. And part of their land was along a river and people would stop there and picnic all the time. And um when the law was passed in 1921, allowing highway to start acquiring these little waysides, places where as people drove along the highway could stop, you know, take a picnic, take a drink of water and things. Um, she donated um, land and she just happened to be the very first one that went through the process. And it occurs to me, you know, you mentioned in in the previous segment about how how Boardman would make promises to oligarchs and whatnot that their name would be enshrined on parks. I can't think of very many parks that actually have somebody's name attached to it. Um, but this one, but this one does. Yeah. And that was as a way to honor her as being the first um, person to donate land. I believe she was like 98 years old when she donated the land. Mm-hmm. You know, she had come across the new wagon on the Oregon trail with her husband early on. And, um, uh, just a neat lady. Yeah. All right. Well, we talked about Boardman's expansion and state parks being part of the highway department, so we don't need to cover that again. I wanted to jump next to the Civilian Conservation Corps and their impact on state parks. So how did they shape the the park system, and what are some of the classic buildings that they built that endure to this day? Um, they shaped the park system quite a lot. Um, Boardman was struggling um, with funding and, you know, development of the parks. Again, he didn't want a lot of development and it was interesting him and the CCC, which was overseen by the National Park Service, butted heads many of a time of what he thought should happen. <laughs> he wanted the, the Civilian Conservation Corps to be more in the road buildings. Like we need money to build roads in our parks. 
and the CCC were like, no, that's not really what we do. You know, we want to develop um, campgrounds and buildings and trails. And um, Boardman put his foot down on campgrounds. Nope. And in all the states in the United States during the CCC time, um, we were the only state not to have any campgrounds developed by the CCC. But we did build some very cool buildings. Um, some of the buildings that they constructed, um, especially at Silver Falls and the, um, the lodge and the different buildings around uh, Silver Falls and at Jesse Honeyman um, with the very cool masonry work and heavy timber logs are very reminiscent mm. of the, they call the National Park Service rustic style. Yeah, and I, didn't they build the original trail of Ten Falls through uh, Silver Falls? There was, yeah. yes, they did. There was sort of like a little path people would follow, but they actually did the full building of the trail, make it more with putting the steps in and um, uh, carving out behind the waterfalls so you could go behind the waterfalls and things like that. So, yes. Well, that's a, it's really interesting. I wanted to, to center on that point that Boardman was so against campgrounds um, because... You know, I mean, we, we could talk about what, what happened during World War II, but after World War II, um, it sounds like state parks and campgrounds really took off. And if he was, it was that just after he retired and that's what it became clear that uh, that Oregonians wanted or or what happened there to turn state parks from a place that, that didn't have any to, you know, all the state's largest state parks or all the state's largest campgrounds are now at state parks. Mm-hmm. Initially, uh, Boardman did not want campgrounds, especially because his view of what a state park should be kind of goes back to that. Um, you go out into nature and you just kind of absorb the healing properties of nature and you leave it alone without any development. Um, he also thought campgrounds were something that um, private industry should be involved in and he didn't want to deal anything with that. But they came around mostly, it was kind of towards the end of his um, his uh, time with state parks. He begrudgingly allowed a couple of uh, campgrounds to be built, um, kind of as a test at Wallowa Lake and Silver Falls. But it was very much pushed by the public. He did not want to do it. And um, his letters talk about not really wanting to do it. But of course, since the public's pushing it, I'll do it sort of a deal. But that all mostly happened after... Um, well, there was, a, you know, getting back to World War II, there was a, a really quick little thing that, that caught my eye um, because, you know, I've written about, you know, there's the different fire lookouts that were that became active military installations as they were looking for Japanese planes on the horizon. But apparently a submarine actually fired on Fort Stevens at, at one point. So do you have any extra on that story? Um, yeah, it was. It was. I believe it was the only um, firing on any uh, military installation in the United States on, um, in excuse me, not in the United States, on the continental United States um, during World War II. And yeah, and at the time they didn't respond back to the fire because they didn't want the Japanese submarine to know that when they hit Fort Stevens that it would be... Um, that they actually hit something. <laughs> so they kept, so there was not a response back. But if you do visit the museum at Fort Stevens, they have uh, pieces of the um, the bomb that was um, after it landed that some of the shrapnel from it and things. Interesting. Well, that'd be kind of fun. I, one of my, just, just randomly, um, there's, there's interesting stories about what the Japanese were able to do in Oregon, uh, during the war that one of my favorite stories is the incendiary bomb that they dropped on the South coast that was intended to try to start a wildfire mm-hmm. um, in, in the forest. And 
it you know it dropped and kind of fizzled because you know this being Oregon it was it was pretty wet and it didn't start a, a fire but you can hike to that point now and see where the bomb actually dropped and I think the original pilot actually came back to that place when they memorialized the park so I, it's just really interesting uh, stuff um, related to that but um, let's see here so anyway World War II ends. And the campgrounds really took off. And I guess I'm kind of curious about this era of, of building, uh, because it sounds like that's when most of the big campgrounds came in. So do you have an idea of what they were kind of shooting for there? Like who these part, these campgrounds were kind of generally designed for and how they were supposed to blend into the landscape? Yeah. Um, so in, after World War II, there was the huge growth of the middle class in the United States. You know, people have cars, they have money to spend. What are we going to do? Let's go on vacation, especially a road trip, see the West sort of idea. And so like we experienced today, visitation went crazy at state parks and they didn't know what to do with everybody. People are parking everywhere. And there was this big demand for campgrounds. You know, they saw campgrounds in other states in the National Park Service. You know, why doesn't Oregon have campgrounds uh, for places, you know, for visitors to come to? So they, you know, like I said, Boardman begrudgingly said, okay, we'll try this out. Um, but the campgrounds are very much designed for car camping. You know, you come with your trailer or with your RV or with your tent. And it was very much geared towards the white middle class, you know, kind of the nuclear family, mom, dad, couple kids, maybe a dog you have along with you sort of a thing. So a lot of the, you know, campgrounds were not um, rural not rural campgrounds, but, you know, not wilderness style campgrounds. They came with amenities. Um, one of my favorite things about Wallawa Lake State Park, which is one of the early, actually one of the first um, campgrounds developed is, you know, they built it with every amenity you could have, you know, the, the bathroom, you had a, a laundry room and there was a um, an ironing board. So you could, you know, iron your clothes and then the park caretaker, which was the early park managers, built um, wooden high chairs for the kids. So there's high chairs out at each of the campsites that the kids could, you could put your baby in as you were doing. So it was kind of like camping with all the amenities of camping. <laughs> yeah. And it, it still has that kind of DNA because it's, I've always thought of state parks as kind of a nice counterpoint to the forest service campgrounds, which are a lot more rustic mm -hmm. or, you know, the backcountry camping, you know, state parks has always been the experience where it's very family oriented. It has more amenities like showers and, uh, you know, and bathrooms and stuff. And, you know, it feels like you're living in kind of more of a, a mini, mini rustic city. Um, or, or community as opposed to the, the Forest Service ones where they're kind of way out there. Um, so was that, I mean, I have to imagine that was driven a little bit by the model that national parks came up with where you concentrate people and then go out to the natural landscapes? Yeah, so um, if, if Sand Boardman is sort of viewed as the cranky, curmudgeonly grandfather of the state park system, uh, Chester Armstrong was the sort of benevolent uncle. Um, and Chester Armstrong followed uh, in Sam's tenure and, and he served under Sam. So he, he well knew sort of the philosophy, but he was much more um, about that development uh, ethic, still limiting it as much as humanly possible. Once again, he served under Sam. He knew the importance of protecting landscapes. But he saw the possibility, based on the public pressure, what was happening nationally, to carve out these little pockets 
where you could provide, in his view, all of the comforts of home so that you could pack up for a weekend. You know, there was a sort of larger families, more families. Um, you, you, you can't spend, you know, all of your effort just getting to the place where you want to sort of unwind. You need to be able to do it easily. Uh, and under Chester, um, many of the campgrounds that we have today, I, I haven't like done a count, but I would say probably 90% of them um, were thanks to his planning and his direct construction and efforts. Uh, but yeah, it was very much on his mind. The um, I need to get help people reach these places. It's not just enough to know that they're there. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Chris, you told me on that same note, you told me something pretty remarkable last week. And that was that basically all of the state park campgrounds were built by 1972. And there's only been, you know, three campgrounds built over the ensuing years. So what happened? Did the agency just come to a point where they said, we've got enough campgrounds for everybody. Let's, let's focus on other stuff. Yeah, I think it hit that first growth limit. You know, the, the, pardon me, not the first, the, we went through the Boardman era and sort of um, snapping up what he viewed were the most important natural places. Uh, Chester and the uh, state park superintendents and directors that followed him um, put a lot of effort into development. And I think they were bumping right up against the limits of that when the 70s hit and there was a lot more economic pressure on highways. Um, That was the beginning of the gas crunch and sort of where the money came from and how it flowed uh, started to change. And you can sort of see that in in the things that happened immediately after the 70s where the money, which had always been highway related for the state park system, you had your money a little from the feds, not very much, um, a little from visitors, not very much, and gas tax was the magic bullet for the state park system. Mm-hmm. That started to change in the 70s. Oh, I was just going to add that also in, in 1972 with the gas crisis, um, they suspended all gas tax money towards the state park. So we were then dependent just on general funds for a few years in that time period. Yeah. I mean, and I want to jump into that, but there's one, one thing that popped up on this little timeline that I, I had to know about. And that was in 1978 state parks opened Oregon's first public nude beach. And I, is there a good story behind that? I mean, it's the 1970s, so fair enough. But was there demand for it? I uh, guess no, the question there was. Is, <laughs> there was great. Why? Well, you got to remember in the 70s, you have the sex revolution happening, you know, sexual revolution. You have the kind of the whole summer of love, the hippies, um, nude bathing just became really popular. And in Oregon, there was no law that said you couldn't nude bathe you could <laughs> that um so it just started to grow and it got very big they were lawsuits about that it was a right to nude bathe as a um what do you call a, a freedom of speech sort of a thing <laughs> and it grew like crazy at rooster rock specifically and it got to the point where they were like what do we do you know we have a couple options you know we could section off an area of the beach and say, you know, this area only for the nude bathing. Um, We could do it. We could bring in more um, law enforcement to help us like crack down on no um, nude bathing. But again, that was right in the middle of the time of the 
a funding crunch and we didn't have any funding to pay for more uh, contracted law enforcement to help us, um, uh, what do you call, to <laughs> help curb the that particular uh, engaged particular thing so they went with the first one they're like let's kind of this quarantine area and say that's where you can do it and leave it like that so it was just it was a demand for being able to swim naked in the columbia river yep that's <laughs> the law there was a law in, in portland at the time that didn't allow public nudity so that pushed a lot of people you know big it was the closest park you could go to was rooster rock and there was also a, mm-hmm. a large um article that was popular at the time like the best nude beaches in the country sort of a thing and rooster rock was identified there so that it just brought the popular the popularity <laughs> up <laughs> okay well jo- jumping back to what you were talking about uh previous about how state parks was starting to kind of run out of money it lost the gas tax um and it, it sounded like things started to get it became uh, kind of a decline period. Is is it fair to say that? Was it just kind of state parks searching around for money that like just gradually led to uh, a deepening crisis that happened in kind of slow motion? Or how did that kind of economic struggle start and then progress? Yeah, I think that was that was the top of the ramp. So the 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 slide down after the 1980 ballot measure that restricted gas tax to just highway development and maintenance. Um, That was sort of reaching the tippy top of the ramp and starting to slide down it. It took a while because we did get general fund, just tax dollars uh, occasionally coming into the system, usually there, but usually not enough. All of this time, the need was growing. Oregon was growing. um, And the park system had a gap between what it could afford to do, given the fact that it had, you know, 50 and 60 year old uh, facilities and what people wanted it to do. And that gap was slowly eating away at the savings um, from the 80s all the way through the mid 90s. So that's only a 10 year period, right? Yeah, gotcha. And Oregon State Park System, you know, it did lead to some kind of interesting inventiveness, it sounds like, you know, in (laughs) terms of coming up with new ways to bring in revenue. I guess the one that I was thinking about was the establishment of yurts. And, you know, yurts actually have deep ties to Oregon. The first manufacturer of yurts in the United States was Cottage Grove-based Pacific Yurts. Uh, But Chris, why did Parks decide to try this out? Was it you guys being inventive and saying, why not? You know, maybe this can bring in some extra revenue. Maybe it's just fun anyway. So, what yeah. what is kind of the the story behind yurts and how they came to be? Well, as the work week uh, sort of put more and more pressure on people, and people were spending more time working and sort of less time on leisure, and maybe even less experience camping as Oregon was growing, people were coming in from out of state to necessarily have the same kind of background in outdoor recreation as people who spend generations and generations here. Um, and Craig Tudor, the one of the um, executives in the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department at the time, was throwing his mind at that problem. And it was like, what do people lack? And it's like the time to set up a tent, the money to buy an RV. It's 1994. How do I solve that problem? Well, other systems are putting up um, platform tents. 
uh, they did this in Washington where you can rent a wooden platform and they'll throw a tent up on it and, and that's your space. And he's like, we can do better. Uh, and I think he ran into uh, Pacific Yurts at a trade show and saw what they were selling, which was probably on the private market. Uh, here are these things that we can, easy to build, relatively inexpensive, um, hardy enough to withstand both the coast and the valley. Uh, and he, he's the one who gave it the shot. But it was that lower the barrier to entry even further than the state park system always does by giving people an easy way to camp. And what did you guys think about it at first? Like, did you know, I, I know you gave it was there was like a test um, collection of them. Were they popular right away? Did people look <laughs> at them and were like, aren't those the things that, you know, the mom? you know, Genghis Khan used to, to conquer Asia. Um, <laughs> they were super <laughs> no. popular yep. right away. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The first two at Cape Lookout, um, which were smaller than the units that we have in service now. Uh, yeah. Immediately popular. Yeah. Yep. There was no looking back from there. Yeah. Well, some of the, uh, while, while yurts, you know, became a big, definitely a sensation and are still very popular to this day, there was a couple other ideas that didn't work quite as well. And I came across some really fun nuggets in old reporting. And one of my favorite was to allow corporate advertising at places like Silver Falls and Smith Rock. This was, again, when you guys were looking for extra revenue, when things sounded like they were getting pretty dire. And, you know, so it would have been like Silver Falls brought to you by Coca-Cola. And I think my favorite idea, though, was adding a scaled down McDonald's at Holman State Park outside of Salem. So how, how do those ideas look looking back? I mean, what does that tell you about where State Parks was at that time? Yeah, well, it's all about that effort to close the gap between what you know a park can do and what you've got the money mm -hmm. to do. And yeah, the uh, executives at the time were like, don't stay in the box. Don't don't violate the mission don't, you know, there are still boundaries, but assume you don't know where they are until you bump into them. Um, and that's where we started doing things like adding cable TV as an option in some campsites um, or offering, uh, you know, not just the Uriton cabins, but other sort of add-on services and the whole idea of corporate sponsorship. Uh, yet, um, looking back on it now, I do sometimes wonder what it would look like if that had worked, you know, um, because I, it, it ended, uh, I think, uh, just from what I can glean, because it's the record that I've, found, I've seen is pretty quiet on that. Mm -hmm. um, and it was almost like, yeah, we'll ask the question and we'll toy with the idea, but there's something holding us back. And even if you don't know what it is, it's the echo of Boardman sort of ringing in your ears saying, what the <laughs> heck? I, why would you it's like I would rather close parks than to sort of sully the spirit of them. But Chrissy, I don't know if you've ever come across anything in your research that it goes into more depth. No, I mean, they, it seems like it was due to the, basically, you know, we didn't have the lottery funds at time. We didn't have the gas tax. They were like, okay, we have no money. How do we do this? And everybody's idea throw it on the table sort of a deal i know they were selling beanie babies yep. at um <laughs> one of the parks on the coast yep. detroit yeah as, as a detroit i think yep. it was detroit yeah not even detroit i think it was the number one seller they said they were they were like trying everything let's yep. build they talked about building a golf course i think at fort stevens or one of the coastal parks i mean it was but mm. 
it seems like once the lottery fund, all that kind of just went away. It was like, as at the, um, at the time it was mostly just, uh, we need money. What's every crazy idea you can think of. Well, that's, that's what newspapers are good for. We'll, 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 see, we'll seize on any crazy idea and then, oh. and then kind of like put it front and center and make it look as though it's like, uh, you know, you can put it in a headline and all of a sudden it's more of a thing than maybe it necessarily meant right? to be. But in seriousness, you know, it, it, you know, things hit the bleakest point in 1996 when it was announced that 64 state parks uh, would be closed to, to balance the budget. So, Chris, do you remember the the mood at that point and kind of how people were were feeling, um, you know, about that? Yeah, well, in, inside the agency, and that was just as I was uh, coming on board, actually, uh, there was this sense of uh, desperation and shock that Oregon, of all places, would be in a position where it state park system was in such need of support that the only answer was to become smaller, right? Rather than become a bigger idea with better funding and just better service that you had to contract in order to survive. Um, Once the staff uh, sort of swallowed that bitter pill, um, they went to work on it. Um, And the public reaction, Mm -hmm. um, both from what I recall coming in and uh, and just reading back on it now was was visceral. It was like, how, how do we not just solve this problem for the next year, but solve it longer term? And looking back at the history of the agency, you can see those moments coming every generation or so um, with no real answer coming. Um, you know, where's the money going to come from to start? Where's mm-hmm. the money going to come from to build? Where's the money going to come from to operate day in, day out? And nobody saying, where's the support, both the social and the financial support going to come from to create a bright future? So we don't have to keep asking this question. Um, we, we don't have an answer yet, not a complete one. But, uh, but I think the threat of closing parks um, at least open the door to get part of the way there for the first time, I think. I don't know if what's your perspective. Yeah, because it was director, I believe, Minum at the time. Um, I always assumed, I guess not always assumed, but it always seemed like when he announced that the parks are going to be closed, it was kind of like he's drawing a line in the sand. Before that, there's not a lot. Before he says, we're closing these parks, I mean, he's begging for money, he's telling the legislative money, but you don't see a lot of dire editorials in the newspapers like oh my gosh the park system's going but then he comes out throws down the gauntlet and says okay we're closing these parks and then it's like almost immediately you see the public reaction going like what what the heck what are you doing there's all sorts of editorials popping up in newspapers and things and it seems that that's the turning point and i always assumed that was him creating that turning point was like okay this is it we're closing it and just start that conversation or to how do we get to stable yep. funding? So. Yep. And it seemed like it was a pretty savvy move because it, it was just, you know, two years later that Measure 66 um, passed the dedicated part of the Oregon Lottery Funds to state parks. You know, it brought in $56 million for the first biennium, and that number has mostly grown over the years. Um, and so the lottery funds kind of brought it from this contraction possibility to an expansion area. So... Chris or or Christy, like, what was the the reaction to like, 
it, it, it seems like a, a quick turnaround in going from, you know, we're in trouble to, hey, we have a bunch more money. Like, how, sh- how should we spend it? And um, so how did how did that kind of all go once you once you had money? Was it like hit the ground running? Yeah. So funny thing, I think everybody walked into that um, that tremendous result uh, with uh, a sense of relief um, when lottery funding was approved for the first time in 98 uh it, it was it was divided into big general two purposes uh the first was um splitting half of that money for the oregon watershed enhancement board for them to work on the salmon recovery plan and the other half was to go to you can hear my air quotes save the state park system and the thing that was imperiling the state park system was mainly its maintenance backlog it was all of these things that were breaking wearing down due to use and age that needed to be fixed more than 100 million dollars worth of stuff uh and this money was going to tackle that one lottery budget at a time um there were also portions of that money that were set aside for a community grant program and for acquisitions, just smaller amounts. It was like, we need to help everybody's boat float, not just the state. So here's money for cities and counties and recreation districts. And we also need to have a little bit of growth um, because there are more people coming and there are still special places that deserve protection. So a little into the acquisition fund. And then the rest of it was just piled into maintenance. Mm -hmm. So that's the plan, right? um, I will mention here that in 1998, when that passed, it had an end date on it of 2014, mm-hmm. where it was like it would automatically get re-referred back to the ballot for a public vote. Uh, so the when we walked into 1999, it was, okay, we've got basically 15 years to show that this was a good investment uh, and that people get what they need out of the state park system. Um and that all eyes were on that and there was a whole sort of management philosophy called target 2014 in the agency that focused our attention on uh you know being good responsible stewards of that investment um oddly enough it never made it to 2014 it got re-referred back to the ballot in 2010 and approved again um but this time without a time limit on it so uh lottery in many ways made the state park system what it is today, you know, um, the seeds were laid by the Chet Armstrongs and the Sam Boardmans and all the past administrators. Um, but Bob Minan and the director since then uh, have really secured uh, a potentially brighter future thanks to lottery funding. Yeah, and it wasn't just uh, that you guys, you know, could tackle some of that maintenance backlog, but for you know, it was it was an expansion era. You guys opened a new park every year for for a little while so was part of that just to show the public hey we have this money and look we're getting these new properties and did it feel like kind of a, a an expansion time period uh yeah there there was uh, still the attention on maintenance and repairs and getting service out of existing parks but the park a year program which was started under governor kulongoski um really was intended to say in the build-up to 2014 um there needs to be uh, real direct tangible evidence that lottery funds are producing good for Oregonians. So the park a year program started in 2004 and it was intended to result in the opening of 10 parks between 2004, 2014, which was the original uh, re-referral back to the ballot for the lottery funding. 
Yeah, and I don't want to breeze past the the fact that state parks are funded and made possible, you know, by gambling. And I think everyone I've talked to within parks or on the Parks Commission has expressed reservations about it, uh, even though gambling has become pretty mainstream at this point. Uh, so, Chris, we talked about this recently. I mean, why can't state parks survive without that influx of lottery dollars or the gas tax? I mean, we talked in the beginning about how there's this massive demand for campgrounds and parks, both in the modern era and, you know, back in, in Boardman's time. So why can't state parks fund themselves? And what would it look like if they had to? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So it's the last one that's that's the good rabbit hole. Uh, the, the, the answer is state parks can can survive without lottery if people choose to have that kind of park system. So you can, you've got, there's probably more than two ways of doing it, but there are two general ways. You could either find a different public subsidy to fund the park system. Um, and that can be tax dollars. It can be other forms of revenue. It doesn't have to be lottery or going to have chosen twice to do it that way. I don't question sort of the judgment or of doing it that way, but that's the choice that Oregonians have make. They could make a different choice. Or you could say, as some other states have, you need to be self-sufficient. You, you need to charge enough and earn enough revenue with the resources that you've got, these tremendous parks, to fund your budget. Right now, no state park earns its keep. Uh, they operate in the red. If you take all of the public subsidy monies out, and by that I mean not just lottery, but we also get a share of the recreational vehicle license plate fee. So if you've got an RV, you get a license plate. 55% of that money after expenses from the DMV comes to us. The other 45% goes to the counties um, for the ones that have campgrounds. So if you take all of that RV money out, all of the lottery money out, and just look at your revenue, parks lose money. And that's mostly intentional, oddly enough. It's just like, that's a really bad business. You're absolutely right. If if we were in it to make money, parks would be smaller. They wouldn't have any free services. And it would cost you maybe two to three times as much to camp because natural spaces with cultural resources and natural resources that need to be protected costs money. And it's not just about the cost to give you water and power and a hot shower at your campsite. You've got a lot to pay for. So we could do it. We Oregon absolutely could have a completely self-sufficient park system. It would be smaller. It would be more expensive. And you or I would be talking about it, but not visiting because, you know, we probably couldn't afford it. So well, all right. We have covered a hundred years of Oregon State Park system and been quite a journey. Final question here. I mean, are you optimistic, both of you, about about the future? For you know, you went through a pretty interesting time when parks had to shut down during the pandemic and then reopen to more demand than ever. Um, so, <laughs> what do you think about the next ten years? What What do you think is going to be the biggest challenges to state parks that, that arise? Ooh, I'm an optimistic person. So I look at history and see all the struggles we've gone through, but how we came out of all those struggles, how we, um, how state parks prospered through all of this and came out better in the end. Um, I think a lot of it goes back to um, capacity and the growing population and the growing popularity that we have and how we're going to address those. I think the physical challenge, we're up to it. 
you know, you can you can plan and build and design a park well enough to survive for another hundred years, another five hundred years. Uh, I'm equally optimistic about the social challenge. Who are parks for? What are they for? That's where the heart's connection comes from that keeps the state park system vibrant and alive and supported is do people feel well served by their parks? And when they do, they tend to be there for you, you know, that the people of Oregon will have the park systems back if we ask ourselves the right hard questions at the right time. We're asking ourselves those questions now. Who do we serve? Who's been left behind by the state park system or doesn't feel welcome in the state park system? Answering that question is not just a matter of sort of social responsibility. It is that, but it's also how do we know the state park system will be here in another 100 years or another 500 years? It's only if it serves every person with equal capability. And our current director has started us in earnest down that path, at least assumptions direction to us to reach out to the communities that we tend not to see show up in the state park system as much and find out why, and then make and understand that and then make the changes necessary to eliminate that problem. Um, I think uh, the, the reason I'm optimistic is there seems to be a real appetite among the people who currently work for the park system to ask those very future oriented questions and to find the answers to them rather than just show up, do your job, be happy with the condition of the park and then go home. You could do that. Um, but that doesn't answer the question about what you're going to do 10 years from now or 50 years from now. So yeah, I, I think in a way, finally, uh, long overdue, those kinds of questions, um, but finding those answers secures the future of the park system, and I think it's bright. All right. Well, that's a great place to end. I want to once again thank Chris Havel, an associate director and spokesman for the Parks Department, and Christy Sweet, the state parks historian, for taking all this time out today to talk about 100 years of state parks in Oregon. So thanks to both of you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. For our environment, for our economy, and for the future, learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. We mentioned earlier that they're recruiting trail ambassadors, but if you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. 
Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.